My name is Jake Bishop. If you don't know me, I am the middle school director here at West Park. Um, and let me just start by saying that it is an honor uh, to be up here studying God's word with you this morning. Uh, I've been sitting here in these seats listening to Pastor Sam for 14 years now, so this is a huge honor for me. Uh, on that note, if you see a woman up front with a camera, just ignore her. My mom is really excited I'm getting this opportunity, <laughs> and I have no idea what she might do, so we'll see. Um, We'll see. All right. So as I said, we will be studying Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. It was kind of a good thing, but kind of a hard thing that Pastor Sam uh, let me choose whatever I wanted to speak from this morning. We're in between series here, so he gave me the go-ahead to choose whatever, which can be good, but it's also tough because I had the whole Bible to choose from. But ultimately, I chose Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 for... Um, for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, I believe this is one of the richest passages in the entire Bible. Uh, if you ever studied it before, you know I think we could spend two months, three months just studying these 10 verses, but I'll try to do it all here in one morning. Second, we're coming off of Thanksgiving. I've been thinking a lot about what I'm thankful for, and the truth of the gospel that I'll be sharing with you today is what I am most thankful for more than anything else. And then finally, next week, we will start our Advent time, our time of Advent, our Advent series. And Advent is a time to celebrate the coming of our Savior. And so my goal for this morning is to show you the beauty of that Savior, okay? The beauty of that Savior. So if you're someone that you need one takeaway out of a lesson, there it is. It's going to be up there the whole morning. The beauty of the Savior, that's what I want you to see. And the way I'm going to start by doing that is I'm going to show you first our need for a Savior, okay? Our need for a Savior. That's how all the Apostle Paul does it in this passage. That's how I'm going to do it. Your need for a Savior. Because here's the thing. I believe the more we understand our need for a Savior, the more beautiful our Savior will be to us. The more we understand our need, the more beautiful he will be. So think about it this way. If you are uh, swimming in a swimming pool, you're with your family, you're at the pool, and a lifeguard blows his whistle, dives in, pulls you out, and administers CPR to you on the side of the pool, how thankful are you to that lifeguard? Well, it depends on whether you're drowning or not. <laughs> if, you're, if you need a savior, if you're drowning, then that lifeguard is pretty beautiful, right? Like, that's, that's very precious, what that lifeguard did. If you're not drowning, then you're just gonna be creeped out, okay? And so we're gonna talk about our need for a savior, and through that, we're gonna see the beauty of our savior. That is my goal this morning. So let's go ahead and dive into our passage, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. It says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast." 
We, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What an awesome passage, right? Well, from this passage, I want you to see three things this morning. And I don't usually worry about them all starting with the same letter or the same word, but I'm in Pastor Sam Polson's pulpit, so, um, so I felt like I needed to. So our three points today are our problem, our solution, and our response. Pretty simple. Our problem, our solution, our response. Before we dive in, let me just pray for us really quickly. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to, to dive into your word. I thank you for uh, the beautiful message that this, this passage gives us. I thank you that, that you are such a beautiful savior and I hope that you'll open all of our eyes uh, to that this morning and speak through me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, let's start with point one here. Our problem, our problem. You see, there, the thing is, we all have something wrong with us. We all have a problem and we all know it, okay? Whether you are a Christian or not, you know that there's a problem. I'll prove it to you. In about a month, we're gonna be celebrating the new year, right? 2017 will be here, and we're all gonna make these things called New Year's resolutions, right? You're gonna say, this year I'm going to save more and spend less. This year I'm going to eat healthier, which lasts for me till about January 2nd. But this year I'm gonna eat healthier. This year I'm gonna read more. Uh, this year I'm gonna go to the gym three days a week. Whatever it may be for you. We make these New Year's resolutions. And what that shows us is that we all know that there's something wrong, correct? Everyone, whether you're a Christian or not, makes these resolutions because we all know that something isn't right. We all know that there is a problem. If you go on amazon.com, just look at the top-selling books. Go look at the self-help books. They sell like crazy. There's a reason for that. We all know that we have a problem. Where we disagree is how bad is that problem? We all know we have one, but how bad is that problem? How bad is what's wrong with me? How bad is what's wrong with the world? You can tell there's something wrong just by, looking, just by watching the news, right? You can tell there's something wrong, but how bad is the problem? And this is important to figure out because I've heard it said that the magnitude of the solution is directly proportionate to the magnitude of the problem. Magnitude of the solution is directly proportionate to the magnitude of the problem. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you have a, have a child or a grandchild or someone you're babysitting or whatever, and they go outside to play and they come back to you and they have a scraped knee. That's a problem. What's the solution? A Band-Aid, right? Solution is a Band-Aid. Now, let's say they have a cold. What's the solution? Some medicine, some rest, maybe a bowl of soup, right? But let's say they go outside and they break their arm and they come to you with a broken arm. Would you throw a Band-Aid on there, hand them a bowl of soup and tell them to keep playing? No, that is very questionable parenting, right? Because the, the magnitude of the solution has to be proportionate to the magnitude of the problem. And so each one of us has a problem. Each one of us has a problem. And our passage tells us pretty clearly that that problem is sin, right? That problem is sin. Maybe you've heard that word before. And when it comes to sin, most people prefer to think of it as just a bad action that they do right? So cheating is a sin, lying is a sin, and, and so on. Sin, though, is not a bad action. It's not just a bad action. It's actually a condition of our heart, 
okay? It's a condition of our heart. It's not that we do bad things and that makes us bad. It's that we do bad things because we are bad. (laughs) We don't cheat and steal and that makes us greedy. We steal and cheat because we are by nature greedy. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. So sin is a condition, okay? That's what Paul is showing us. Sin is a condition and it is our problem. So I said we disagree. How bad is the problem? Well, Paul tells us here, how bad is our condition? Ephesians 2 tells us that our condition has made us dead. Dead. Not sick, not discouraged. You don't need just a pep talk. You're dead, okay? So Paul is looking for a word to describe how bad it is, how bad our condition is, and he goes with the worst word you could possibly pick, dead, dead. It doesn't get worse than that. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So our condition is that we are literally the walking dead, okay? That is our condition, And so Paul wants to show us that our problem is not that we're in God's doghouse, right? It's not that we're in God's doghouse. It's that we're in the morgue. We don't just need a little encouragement. We're dead. And so if the magnitude of the solution is directly proportionate to the magnitude of the problem, then Paul wants to show us that our problem is great, which means our solution has to be great. You tracking with me? All right. And so think about it this way. The solution to a scraped knee is a Band-Aid. The solution to a cold is medicine. The solution to a broken arm is a cast. But if you're dead, the solution is a miracle, right? The solution is a miracle and nothing less. And so what I want you to see this morning, and I hope I'm thoroughly depressing you, is that all of us without Jesus Christ are dead in our sins. All of us without Jesus Christ are dead in our sins. And so this may be where you're thinking, Who are you to say that about me, right? Who are you to say that about me, throwing this word dead out there? What, what, okay, this is just depressing. Who are you to say that? And so, you know, maybe you're thinking at this point, you know, I'm not that bad. You know, I I do really, I do good stuff. I'm not a Christian. I don't know Jesus, but I do some really good things. You don't know me. I, I know who you're talking about when you say dead, but you're not talking about me. Let me point something out to you. Um, possibly the greatest preacher of all time, Charles Spurgeon, great English preacher, spoke on this passage many times. And he always pointed out that there are three events recorded in the Gospels where Jesus encounters someone who has died, okay? Maybe you can think of them in your head. And so these, there's three events. So the first one is a little girl, okay? A little girl. And so Jesus is out um, with the people and this man named Jairus runs to find him, okay? He runs to find Jesus, And he says, he's trying to find Jesus because his little girl is sick and he wants Jesus to come and heal her before she dies. But right when Jairus gets to Jesus, someone comes to him and says, hey, just leave Jesus alone. Your daughter has died, okay? So she died just minutes, minutes before that. But Jesus decides to go with him anyway. And so Jesus walks into this house. The girl has just died. Everyone around is crying their mourning. And Jesus sees this little girl lying on the couch. Now, here's what I want you to think about. What would that little girl look like? She probably wouldn't look dead, right? She, she would still be warm. She'd still have her color. It wouldn't even appear like she's dead. She'd appear like she's sleeping. The second instance is a young man. Jesus is walking into a town. There's a funeral procession coming out of the town. And he sees this funeral procession. 
And these men would have been carrying their friend on like this stretcher. And they would do that the day after they, they died. And so they'd carry him on the stretcher so they didn't touch him because they thought that would make him ceremonially unclean. And so they're carrying him out on this stretcher. And this man has been dead for 24 hours. So what would he look like? A little bit more dead than the little girl, right? He would, he would be cold. He, he would lose some color. He would appear to be dead. And then the final instance, the third instance, is probably the one we're most familiar with. It's Lazarus, right? And Jesus walks up to Lazarus' tomb and it's been four days since he died. And Jesus says, roll away the, the stone, let, let, me, let me see into the tomb. And, and Lazarus' sister says, Jesus, we can't do that. He's gonna stink, right? He's been dead for four days. So if you see Lazarus, he looks really, really, really dead. He's decomposing. And so the little girl, the little girl doesn't appear dead. Lazarus appears really, really, really dead. But here's what I want you to see. There's not different levels of dead, okay? There are not different levels of dead. The, the little girl and Lazarus look different, but both are equally dead. They both are equally dead. And so when we see that, when we see that there are not different levels, different degrees of dead, the Bible is putting the end to the comparison game. It's putting an end to the comparison game. So you can point at someone and say, listen, I'm not dead because I'm not as bad as them. Maybe you're right that you're not as bad as them. Maybe their death has come more to the surface. But there are not different levels of dead. Dead is dead, right? There are not different degrees. And so what that means is doing good deeds or voting for the right candidate or going on mission trips or doing ministry or whatever it is, that stuff can't give you life. That stuff can't give you life. Isaiah says that because of our sins, even our good deeds are just filthy rags to God. And so that means that the prostitute, the drug addict, and the ABF leader who's never missed a church a day in his life are all dead in their sins without Jesus. They're all dead in their sins without Jesus. And if that's not depressing enough, our passage doesn't stop there. It says that we are all, every single one of us, children of wrath. And so the sin that I've been talking about, it's rebellion against a perfect, holy God. And the just thing for that perfect, holy God to do is to punish that rebellion. And so each and every one of us deserve eternity separated from him in hell. Heaven is not our, our default destination, hell is. And our sin, our sins have made us completely helpless to change that. But thankfully, we're not hopeless. <laughs> thankfully, we are not hopeless. And that's where we're moving on to point two to see why. Point two to see why, it's our solution, our solution. Thankfully, our passage doesn't end at verse three. In verse four, we see maybe the two most beautiful words in all of the Bible, but God, but God. It says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Our problem is death, but Jesus is in the business of giving life. 
He is the miracle we need. Think back to those three people I mentioned earlier. The little girl, she's on the couch, she's died. But Jesus walks in through all the mourning people and says, little girl, get up. And she gets up. (laughs) With the funeral procession, he's walking in, he sees this procession coming out, he sees this mother weeping because she's lost her son. And Jesus says, no, not today, get up. And he gets up and starts talking. And then we all know the story of Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come out. And here comes this man who's been dead for four days coming out. He gives him life. And so these three, they all have experienced divine intervention. Jesus stepped into their helpless situation and gave them life. Well, we are spiritually dead, just like those three were physically dead. That's the the picture that the Bible paints for us. But God is rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy. Jesus was willing to step in for us by going to the cross, our cross, the cross that we deserve to die. And this cro- the cross is never mentioned specifically in our passage, but we're pointed to it by those two beautiful words, but God. But God stepped in. And let's talk about that cross for a little bit here. On the cross, Jesus experienced a death that makes the most gruesome death that we could face seem like a paper cut in comparison. And that's not because of the physical pain that he experienced. Now, that would have been awful. The physical pain would have been horrible. But people have experienced worse. Even some of his disciples experienced worse. Christian martyrs have experienced worse. It wasn't even just because of the emotional pain Now, it would have been awful to have his friends walk out on him and turn their backs on him, but that is not what made what he went through so horrific. At one point, Jesus cries out in agony. Do you remember what he says? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me point something out to you. Jesus doesn't cry, my hands, my hands, even though there's nails through them. He doesn't cry, my back, my back, even though he's been whipped and he's rubbing up against that wood. He doesn't cry, my head, my head, even though there's a crown of thorns stuck in in his head. He doesn't even cry, my friends, my friends, even though everyone has abandoned him. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you see what happened on the cross is that Jesus was cut off from his father, He was cut off from his father. The wrath of God that Ephesians 2 says that we deserve was on him. It was on him. On the cross, our sin, our rebellion, our disobedience, it all fell on Jesus's shoulders. He took our sins and the punishment we deserved. And God the Father looked at him, saw our sins, saw our transgressions, And because he's so perfect and holy, he had no choice but to turn away in disgust. You see, that cross, it's not just the cross. It's my cross. It's your cross. We put Jesus on that cross. It was our sin that did it. Think about just just the, the best that we can think about, I think, to understand the agony that Jesus would have gone through is I think we can all agree that there may be no agony worse than the loss of a relationship that we desperately want, right? We all experience that on some level. If an acquaintance tells you that they don't wanna ever be around you anymore, that hurts, right? (laughs) If it's a best friend or someone you're dating says they don't wanna be around you anymore, that hurts even worse. 
If it's a, if it's a spouse or a father or a mother, that can almost be unbearable, okay? We cannot fathom what it would be like for Jesus to lose the love of the Father that he experienced for eternity. The greatest love between a husband and a wife, the greatest love between a child and a parent is like a raindrop compared to the Atlantic Ocean, compared to the love between Jesus and the Father that has lasted for all eternity. But on the cross, instead of that infinite love that Jesus has always experienced, he's now experiencing a crushing wrath. Can you imagine the agony that he would be feeling? We can't imagine the agony that he would be feeling. And so that's where we see this moment of him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And I've always actually been really confused about that phrase, when, it, when he calls that out. Because here's the thing, I always thought that that was kind of the moment where Jesus was losing it, right? It seems that that's the moment where it's just the pain is too much. He can't take it anymore. It seems like this is where he's cracking. But let me point something out to you. This moment where it seems like Jesus is cracking is actually him calling out that he is going to complete the mission that has been set forth from the beginning of when sin entered the world. You see, what we often forget is when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 22. It's a psalm by King David, and it starts like this. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> and then he doesn't stop there. He says this, he says, all who see me mock me. They shake their heads at me. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. David is speaking of an execution. When did that ever happen to David? It didn't, okay? It didn't. David is talking about what would happen to Jesus a thousand years later. This is a prophecy about what was happening, was gonna happen to Jesus. And so when Jesus calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not cracking. He's saying, I'm the one that David was pointing to. <laughs> Even in the Old Testament, I'm the one that David was pointing to. It's me. I've come to die. It's me, that is who he was pointing to. It's me, right? And so my question is, why would Jesus do it? <laughs> why would he do it? We've seen what he's gone through, why would he do it? Why would the same God who created the universe be willing to die on a tree that he made? Why would Jesus be willing to go through the agony of being cut off from the Father that he loves so much? Why would he go through with this when he could have aborted the mission whenever he wanted to? Well, the correct answer, but the inadequate answer, the correct and inadequate answer is that he was doing it to glorify his Father. And so why did Jesus do it? He did it to glorify his father. That is 100% correct. But the reason I say that's inadequate is because he was doing that perfectly in heaven. He was perfectly glorifying his father in heaven. So why did he have to come to earth? 
Why did he have to come to earth if he didn't have to come to earth to glorify his father? Why did he come? What did he get by coming to earth, living a sinless life, and dying on the cross that he didn't have before? Us, right? Us, it's it's us. He did it for us. Why did he do it? He did it for you. Our passage says, because of the great love with which he loved us. Jesus was willing to take the punishment that we deserve because of our, his great love for us. We didn't deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. We didn't, he didn't save us because of anything that we did or anything that you did. He did it because of his love for you. Just let that sink in for a second. Why did he come? Why did he go through what he did for you? And because of what he accomplished on the cross, you can have eternal life with God rather than the eternity separated from him that I talked about earlier. And let me repeat that that's because of nothing that you did, okay? Nothing you did to deserve that. I love how George Whitfield put it. He said, you wanna get to heaven on your own strength? You might as well climb to the moon on a rope of sand. It's nothing that we can do. And so maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian and you came here today and, and you, you, you're curious, curious enough to be here, but you just, I say this and you're like, that's for the good people, right? Christians are all, you know, good people who, who don't really make any mistakes. Well, let me just tell you that there's not one Christian in this room that did anything to deserve the grace that we received. We did nothing to deserve the grace that we deceive. We were all dead in our sins at one point, and we still mess up often. It was all God's grace. So no matter who you are, if you're not a Christian, no matter what mistakes you've made, let me tell you that your sin is no match for God's grace. It is no match for God's grace. I wasn't even planning on telling this, but, but I think a story that illustrates this perfectly, and I'll do it quick, is the story of Hosea in the Old Testament. There's a story of Hosea. Hosea is a prophet, okay? He's a prophet. So he's a great, godly man. And God tells Hosea to marry someone. So who is God gonna tell Hosea, the prophet, to marry? Probably a godly woman, right? Well, instead, he tells him to go and marry a prostitute named Gomer. And so that's what Hosea does. He goes and he marries this prostitute. And throughout the Bible, there may be times where we see that maybe someone is in prostitution, it's not really their choice, but we're told pretty much in this story that this was a choice by, Hosea, or by Gomer to be in this profession. And so Hosea goes and he marries Gomer, and things go pretty well at first. They have three kids. Hosea's a godly man. We'd assume that he treats her better than any man's treated her before. But in kind of a twist, Gomer turns her back on Hosea and goes back into that old life, that old life of sin. And so if you're Hosea in this situation, what do you do? I mean, if it's me, I say, I gave her everything, let her go, right? Let her go, let her get what she wants. But God tells Hosea, he says, go get her back. Go get her back. And that's what Hosea does. And so there's this this amazing, amazing time in this story where Gomer is actually being sold. (laughs) And it tells what she's being sold for, and it's like half what everyone else is being sold for because she's kind of, at this point, she's old, no one really even wants her. And 
She's up there on the stage. No one wants her. She's being sold. And all of a sudden, someone comes in and says, I'll do whatever I need to to get her back. (laughs) I'll do whatever I need to to get her back. And so put yourself in Gomer's shoes. You're looking out and you're saying, is that my ex-husband, right? Is that my ex-husband? And he comes in and he says, I don't care what I have to give. I'll pay anything to get her back. I don't care what she's done to me. I'll do anything to get her back. Now, what does that story show us? That no matter what we've done, God was willing to give even his son to have us back. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? We turned our back on him. We ran the other way. But he was willing to even send his son to have a relationship with us again. And so no matter who you are, no matter what, you're, what you've done, your sin is no match for God's grace. Let me talk really quick before we move on to point three. Let me talk really quick again, just a little bit more about the cross. Because verses four through seven in our passage are really powerful. It tells us three things that God does for Christians because of the cross. It says, he makes us alive with Christ, he raises us up with Christ, and he seats us with him in the heavenly realms. Well, here's an interesting thing about these three statements. They all, and and we can't see this really in the English, but they all start in the Greek with the same prefix. It's S-Y-N, sin. So think of the word synonymous, okay? And what it means is together with. So it's really hard to translate, but what this is saying is, God made us alive together with Christ, he raised us up together with Christ, and he seated us in heaven together with Christ. There's an emphasis on together with, okay? And so when you become a Christian, you are united with Christ. You are together with him. And we are so united with him that we get what he deserves, We get what he deserves. When you trust in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, everything Jesus ever did and everything he deserves becomes yours. You're as honored, you're as loved, and you're as accepted as his actions deserved. So he takes our sin and we get his righteousness. Our actions deserve death and wrath and Jesus took that on the cross but it doesn't stop there. By trusting in him, we get what he deserved, love and acceptance from God the Father. Isn't that amazing? And so Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live and he died the death that we deserve to give dead people life. He is the miracle we needed. And Paul makes it clear that this is a free gift, right? It is a gift, it is a free gift. And we throw that around a lot. You hear that a lot, right? It's a free gift. You just have to accept it. Well, here's the thing. Let me point this out to you. It's a free gift, but it's a gift that requires that you swallow your pride. You have to swallow your pride. I love love this illustration. My, My favorite author, Tim Keller, said this. He says, imagine that it's Christmas morning and you have friends over and you get some gifts. And so you open that first gift from a friend and it's a book. Not only is it a book, it's a dieting book, okay? Your friend has bought you a dieting book. And so you put that book down and you open the next gift. And it's a book called Overcoming Selfishness. That's your presence, okay? If you take those gifts and you say thank you 
and you accept them, in essence, you're admitting to your friends that you are fat and obnoxious, right? (laughs) You're admitting to your friends that you are fat and obnoxious. Well, here's the thing. It works the same way. To accept this gift, you have to first admit, I am a sinner, I deserve God's wrath, I deserve hell for eternity, and I need a savior. You have to swallow your pride to accept this gift. And let me move on now to point three, and I'll do this quick because I'm, I'm running out of time, but it says this. Point three, our response, our response. How do we respond to this news that I've talked about today? It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's a gift. What is the proper reaction to a gift? It depends on how good the gift is, right? (laughs) It depends on the greatness of the gift. So I love this illustration. This is from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's an old-time pastor from, uh, from England. He says this. He says, imagine that you come to your house and your friend is waiting outside. And he says, hey, while you were gone, someone showed up with a bill. And since I'm your friend, I took the bill, I opened it up, I read it, I'm sorry, but I went ahead and paid your bill. So you have nothing to worry about anymore. Don't worry about that bill anymore. I sent it off, it's paid for. What is your reaction? Well, it depends on what the bill was, right? If he paid that month's electric bill, Great, right? You say, thank you, you shake his hand, give him a hug maybe, and say, you're a really good friend, I appreciate that. But what if the bill was from the IRS about your 11 years of back taxes, and they're saying, we're coming to get you. (laughs) We're coming to get you if you don't pay this right now. Would your reaction just be a handshake and a thank you? No, it'd be something so much greater than that. So my point is, Jesus We had a bill that was much greater than 11 years of back taxes, right? And Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. And so what is our response? What is our response to that? Well, I'll give you three things. First of all, we don't boast, okay? We don't boast in the gift that we've been given. What do we have to boast in? It was all Jesus. There is nothing for us to boast in. Number two, we respond with joy. I know that this has been a hard time for many in our church. I see that working with our students. And life is hard. Even just living for Jesus on a daily basis is hard. But when you understand the gift that we've been given, how can you not just overflow with joy regardless of circumstances? When you understand the beauty of our Savior, how can you not, no matter what life throws at you, right? And number three, finally, we respond with good works. We respond with good works. Now, let me point out that I said respond with good works. Here's the key difference between Christianity and other religions, or one key difference between Christianity and other religions. Most religions say, do good works so that you'll be accepted by God. Well, we see today that we did nothing to be accepted by God. So we do good works because God has already accepted us even though we didn't deserve it, right? We work from that. 
And so you can do all the works in the world and that can't earn God's acceptance. He has already accepted us through Jesus Christ. And we do good works in response to that. Do you understand the difference? Do you understand the difference? And so let me just close here with one question. One question. We've seen here the beauty of the Savior. My one question for you is are you dead or are you alive? Are you dead or are you alive? I read this story about the Titanic sank in 1912. And there was just one town where there were a lot of people from that town on the ship. And they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have internet, they didn't have television. So they didn't know who had died and and who had survived. This news wasn't coming out as quick as we could get it today. And so what this newspaper in this town did is they posted a sign. And on the left, it said dead. And on the right, it said alive. And there was a line down the middle. And when news would come in, when these names would come in, they would take these names and they'd throw them on one side or the other, dead or alive. Now, if you've seen the movie Titanic, you know that there were your rich Kate Winslets, right? And your poor Leonardo DiCaprios and everyone in the middle. There were people on this ship who had accomplished a lot, people on the ship who had been failures, people who were good people, people who had made a lot of mistakes. But when that ship sank, They were either dead or alive. And that's how God sees it. If you're in Jesus, you are alive. If you are not, you are still dead in your sins. And so we are gonna move on. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna go into this time of communion. But if you you have questions, if if you realize that you are dead in your sins, that you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross please come talk to one of our pastors. Talk to the person beside you. They'd love to talk to you, I'm sure. You're not gonna waste their time. Talk to Pastor Sam, talk to me, whoever you wanna talk to. But as we go in this time of communion, let me just pray. And let's just think and pray and meditate on the beauty of our Savior and what he did for us on the cross. Let me pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you that you are such a beautiful Savior. I thank you that even when we didn't deserve it, when we deserved nothing but your wrath, that you sent your son to save us. Lord, I just pray that that we we will all understand your beauty, that we will all understand what you did for us, and that those of us who do will be shining lights for you everywhere we go, that we will go share this amazing news with others. Lord, we just love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.